Hey everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. This week in our 65th session, we begin book six of The Lord of the Rings with a return to Samwise Gamgee at Kirith Ungol, the rescue of Frodo, and the long march to Mount Doom. We are picking up, of course, from the events of book four of The Lord of the Rings, right from the very end of The Two Towers. If you have forgotten in the long months since we discussed the events of book four of The Lord of the Rings, Frodo was injured by Shelob and then taken by orcs. Sam laid out his body in in repose, believing Frodo to be dead, of course, uh, took the ring so that he could continue his master's journey and, and give some fragile hope to the West, the hope of the destruction of the One Ring. Only it turns out that Frodo was only mostly dead and then was taken by the orcs beyond Sam's ability to rescue him. We will pick up with Samwise Gamgee in just a moment. Before we get to all of that, though, I noticed in the question bucket a question that Angela, I think, has been asking for maybe the last three weeks straight that I have not had an opportunity to address. So I'm going to address this question right up front. Let's do this before we get into book six. How about that? Angela asks, is there a connection slash reflection between the Oathbreaker leader breaking his breaking his spear and Denethor breaking the staff of stewardship? The oath Breaker leader fulfilled his oath and is released from his bond, while Denethor breaks his oath and ends his stewardship. The King of the Dead broke his spear and cast it down, and Denethor took up the staff of stewardship and broke it over his knee, casting the pieces into the blaze. Um, yes, I mean, yes, there is a powerful reflection there. It's it's a reflection of intent, but we are, of course, observing a very similar phenomenon here. And these are only two of the three examples in the book, because we also have the breaking of Saruman's staff by Gandalf at uh, at Orthanc in Isengard. The breaking of a staff or a spear, this, the spear here kind of coexistent with the staff as a symbol of one's role, as a symbol of one's purpose. When that is broken, it does indicate the putting down of a burden or the removal of an authority. The Oathbreaker is distinct in that both Gandalf's shattering of Saruman's staff and Denethor's elective breaking of the staff of stewardship represent a removal of authority without a fulfillment. Denethor does not fulfill his role as steward. He abrogates his responsibility as steward, in fact, there in Minas Tirith. But the Oathbreaker King... The Oathbreaker leader, um, yeah, the, the yes, the, the terminology is a little imprecise, but the leader of the Oathbreakers uh, the, that are summoned to the Stone of Erech by Aragorn um, after his, his transit through the Paths of the Dead, he has fulfilled now his oath. So that breaking is symbolic in the same way, but the purpose is different, or the, the, the consequence, the inference of that action is very different. But yes, Angela, I think you're exactly right to pull out the similarity between those two events that you mentioned and also the breaking of Saruman's staff too. With all of that said, let's get into our reading here. Um, so we pick up in the Tower of Kirith Ungol. I think we're just going to begin with the first slide here, then we'll circle back around to some, uh, some greater context here. There we go. Sam roused himself painfully from the ground. For a moment, he wondered where he was, and then all the misery and despair returned to him. He was in the deep dark outside the undergate of the orc's stronghold. Its brazen doors were shut. He must have fallen stunned when he hurled himself against them, but how long he had lain there, he did not know. Then he had been on fire, desperate and furious. Now he was shivering and cold. He crept to the doors and pressed his ears against them. Far within, he could hear faintly the sounds of orcs clamoring, but soon they stopped or passed out of hearing and all was still. His head ached and his eyes saw phantom lights in the darkness, but he struggled to steady himself and think. It was clear at any rate that he had no hope of getting into the orc hold by that gate. He might wait there for days before it was opened and he could not wait. Time was desperately precious. He had no doubt, he had, excuse me, he no longer had any doubt about his duty. He must rescue his master or perish in the attempt. 
and perishing is more likely, and would be a lot easier anyway, he said grimly to himself as he sheathed Sting and turned from the brazen doors. Slowly he groped his way back in the dark along the tunnel, not daring to use the elven light, and as he went he tried to fit together the events since Frodo and he had left the crossroads. He wondered what, what the time it was. Somewhere between one day and the next, he supposed, but even of the days he had quite lost count. He was in a land of darkness where the days of the world seemed forgotten, and where all who entered were forgotten too. I wonder if they think of us at all, he said, and what is happening to them all, all away there. He waved his hand vaguely in the air before him, but he was in fact now facing southwards as he came back to Shelob's tunnel, not west. Out westward in the world, it was drawing to noon upon the 14th day of March in the Shire Reckoning, and even now Aragorn was leading the Black Fleet from Pelargir, and Merry was riding with the Rohirrim down the Stonewain Valley, while in Minas Tirith flames were rising and Pippin watched the madness growing in the eyes of Denethor. Yet amid all their cares and fears, the thoughts of their friends turned constantly to Frodo and Sam. They were not forgotten." But they were far beyond aid, and no thought could yet bring any help to Samwise Hamfast's son. He was utterly alone. We've talked a lot about the way that the temporal schema of this part of The Lord of the Rings is painstakingly arrayed. Tolkien spent a lot of time figuring out exactly when all of these events were happening, exactly how long it took people to travel from one place to another, exactly how long their conversa conversations took, let alone the great battles that mark this part of the War of the Ring. In book six, we are going to, in both this chapter and the next, we're going to give specific accounts of what was happening back in the pages of book five. We are not concerned at this point with the suspension of any kind of narrative ambiguity. Sam doesn't know how long he lay he laid there in the dark after casting himself against the brazen doors of Kerith Ungol, trying to follow after Frodo after he was uh, after he was taken. But we know, we know exactly how long Sam has been there. And the answer is basically no time at all. Basically no time at all has passed. It is now noon on the 14th day of March in the Shire Reckoning. Even now, says the narrator, pulling us away from Sam in a relatively unusual narrative move for the Lord of the Rings, kind of specifically framing out events that are occurring far in the West. Not just specific events, of course, but also the thoughts and cares of those people who are currently striving far to the West of Frodo and Sam. Aragorn was leading the Black Fleet from Pelargir. Mary was riding with the Rohirrim down the Stonewain Valley, while in Minas Tirith flames were rising and Pippin watched the madness growing in the eyes of Denethor. Yet amid all their cares and fears, the thoughts of their friends turned constantly to Frodo and Sam. They were not forgotten, but they were far beyond aid, and no thought could yet bring any help to Samwise Hamfast's son. He was utterly alone. Samwise Hamfast's son is a really nice inversion of the kind of naming convention that we've seen in Book 5, where we were talking a lot, of course, about uh, Pippin's son, uh, Peregrine's son of Paladin, right? And um, to a lesser extent, Mariadic son of Saradoc, as I said earlier, we only get that reference once in the entire book, you know. Mariadic is not oftentimes listed as son of Saradoc, which is appropriate because, of course, he is with the Rahirim, and the Rahirim are generally inclined to pay less attention to that kind of naming convention. Certainly that seems to be more of a Gondorian thing than it is a, a, Rohiric, uh, a Rohiric naming convention. But here we get the inversion of that. Not Samwise, son of Hamfast, but Samwise, Hamfast's son, which is appropriate for Sam because he is of a lower class. And I'm almost reluctant to move so immediately back into a discussion of, of class distinction and class boundary in The Lord of the Rings, but much of what follows in the next three chapters is only going to make 
purposeful emotional sense to us if we are constantly mindful of the difference between Frodo and Sam. Also, you know, in a broader sense, the difference between Sam and Mary, Sam and Pippin too. Mary, Pippin and Frodo are all noble hobbits. They are all gentle hobbits. They are of a higher social class, a higher social order than Samwise Gamgee. He is of the servant classes. He is of the working classes in a way that Frodo, Mary, and Pippin are not. And we must be mindful of that when we look at the interactions between Frodo and Sam. At this point in the story, we are going to arrive at a greater intimacy and a greater parity, a greater equity, I suppose, between Frodo and Sam than we have seen at any point previously in the book. But we are not going to cast aside that disparity of rank and privilege entirely. We are never, in fact, going to cast aside that disparity of rank and privilege entirely. Sam is always, always going to be Frodo's servant. And that's no bad thing. This is not a a demonstration of Frodo's inability to acknowledge the, the... potential social mobility of Hobbit culture, right? It's not that Frodo is failing to honor Sam truly as a companion, truly as a friend, truly as someone who is beloved. It's actually the opposite of that. Frodo is honoring Sam's position because to elevate Sam to his own rank would be somewhat disrespectful, would be would would read almost potentially as sarcastic. So we need to, to think about that. Jackie observing here, this is elevated on another level because we're so a- accustomed to referring to Sam's father as the gaffer, right? Sam's son, son of the gaffer or Sam the gaffer's son is very different. That is, that is colloquial and casual in a way that Samwise Hamfast's son is not. We are respecting both father and son here, but we're doing so in a way that is appropriate to Sam and to Hamfast's social rank here. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. So this is our reintroduction to Sam, who is forthright, who is stalwart, who is indefatigable, who is dedicated now to his immediate goal. And that immediate goal has, of course, shifted. When he believed that Frodo was dead, he took the ring, he took Sting, he took the file of Galadriel because he believed that his duty was to continue his master's work and to destroy the ring if indeed he could, if indeed such a thing were possible. But here, things have changed. It was clear at any rate he had no hope of getting into the orc hold by that gate. He might wait there for days before it opened and he could not wait. Time was desperately precious. He had he, he no longer had any doubt about his duty. He must rescue his master or perish in the attempt. No thought of the ring. No thought of his, well, what we might consider a greater responsibility. But of course, the destruction of the ring was never Sam's responsibility. The destruction of the ring was only ever Frodo's responsibility. And even now that he is the ring bearer, and even now that we from our privileged position might question Sam's judgment here, he cannot set aside his immediate and and intimate loyalty to Frodo Baggins, right? He has to rescue Frodo. That is all that there is now. That is the job of a servant for his master. That is the duty of a servant to his master. And he has to undertake it no matter what. Even though he's having some trouble maintaining his uh, his sense of hope. And I love very much how in the next two chapters, which we're going to try today, we're not going to finish, uh, we're not going to finish the second chapter today, but that's actually fine because that leaves us with a little bit of chapter two and all of chapter three to cover next week. But It's interesting to note how Sam goes through these cycles of hopelessness and then the restoration of hope. It is not just that Sam has within his breast this this light that cannot be extinguished, this, this absolute courage and faith and optimism, this hope in their undertaking. That is not the case, in fact. Sam's hope will be challenged time and time again, and we must pay close attention to those things, to those realizations, to those epiphanies, which restore some measure of hope to Sam. We've seen this, of course, before. We saw this 
right at the end of the two towers, back in the stairs of Kirith Ungol, back before we got to the Tower of Kirith Ungol itself. Back in the stairs of Kirith Ungol, we have that great passage where he remembers the great tales, how great tales never end. Well, we're going to see more of that from Sam as we move forward, yeah. So with that said, let's get to the very verge of Mordor. Then he halted and sat down. For the moment, he could drive himself no further. He felt that if once he went beyond the crown of the pass and took one step veritably down into the land of Mordor, that step would be irrevocable. He could never come back. Without any clear purpose, he drew out the ring and put it on again. Immediately, he felt the great burden of its weight and felt afresh, but now more strong and urgent than ever, the malice of the eye of Mordor, searching, trying to pierce the shadows that it had made for its own defense, but which now hindered it, it, hindered it in its unquiet and doubt. As before, Sam found that his hearing was sharpened, and that to his sight the things of the world seemed thin and vague. The rocky walls of the path were pale, as if seen through a mist, but still at a distance he heard the bubbling of Shilob in her misery, and harsh and clear and very close it seemed, he heard cries and the clash of metal. He sprang to his feet and pressed himself against the wall beside the road. He was glad of the ring, for here was yet another company of orcs on the march. Or so, at first, he thought... Then suddenly he realized that it was not so. His hearing had deceived him. The orc cries came from the tower, whose topmost horn was now right above him on the left hand of the cleft. Sam shuddered and tried to force himself to move. There was plainly some devilry going on. Perhaps in spite of all orders, the cruelty of the orcs had mastered them and they were tormenting Frodo, or even savagely hacking him to pieces. He listened, and as he did so, a gleam of hope came to him. There, couldn't, there could not be much doubt. There was fighting in the tower. The orcs must be at war among themselves. Shagrat and Gorbag had come to blows. Faint as was the hope that his guests brought him, it was enough to rouse him. There might be just a chance. His love for Frodo rose above all other things, and forgetting his peril, he cried out, I'm coming, Mr. Frodo! He ran forward to the climbing path and over it. At once the road turned left and plunged steeply down. Sam had crossed into Mordor. He took off the ring, moved it maybe by some deep premonition of danger, though to himself he thought only that he wished to see more clearly. Better have a look at the worst, he muttered. No good blundering about in a fog. Sam's interactions with the ring, of course, are... are incredible through this chapter. We're going to look at that most clearly in the next slide when we get the real offer of the ring. We get the real seductive challenge of the ring to the heart of Samwise Gamgee. But even here, we see what the ring represents to him. He is here trembling at the, the top of the pass, ready now to move into Mordor, or actually not ready now to move into Mordor, hesitant on the very threshold of Mordor itself. For the moment he could drive himself no further, he felt that if once he went beyond the crown of the pass and took one step veritably down into the land of Mordor, that step would be irrevocable. He, irrevocable excuse me, he could never come back. And then his immediate response, without any clear purpose, he drew out the ring and put it on again. Immediately he felt the great burden of its weight and felt afresh, but now more strong and urgent than ever, the malice of the eye of Mordor, searching, trying to pierce the shadows that it had made for its own defense, but which now hindered it in its unquiet and doubt. Here on the very precipice of Mordor, Sam's instinctive response, without any clear purpose, without apparently any conscious thought at all, he takes out the ring and puts it on. And what is the consequence of taking out the ring and putting it on? Well, he immediately feels its weight. He feels the malice of the eye searching constantly for the ring. This is clearly the ring's influence. The ring is taking advantage of this moment of weakness from Sam, this moment of, of hesitation and of fear on the, 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 the threshold of Mordor itself. It's taking advantage of this moment of weakness to expose itself to the eye of Barad-dûr, to the eye of Sauron. As before, Sam found that his hearing was sharpened, but that to his sight the things of the world seemed thin and vague. The rocky walls of the path were pale as though seen through a mist, but still at the distance he heard the bubbling of Shilob in her misery, and harsh and clear and very close it seemed, he heard cries and the clash of metal. He sprang to his feet and pressed himself against the wall beside the road. 
He hears now the sounds of conflict. The bubbling of Shelob in her misery, by the way, is awful and terrible and beautiful. But he hears the clash of conflict drawing ever nearer. And his immediate thought is, oh no, it's another company of orcs coming this way. I must keep on the ring and seek shelter so as to protect myself from the coming of the orcs. And then he realizes, no, wait, I am being deceived. I am not hearing what is actually transpiring. I am hearing what is transpiring refracted through the prism of my fear and doubt. It turns out that there isn't actually another company of orcs coming. Sam is, in this moment, resisting the influence of the ring. I have no doubt at all that the coming company of orcs is a product of the ring's manipulation of the world around Sam, that, that it is twisting his perception of what he can actually hear in this moment, right? He presses himself against the wall beside the road. He was glad of the ring, for here was yet another company of orcs on the march. It's not just that he is using the ring, it's he's grateful for the ring. In this moment, oh, the ring, fantastic. I'm so glad I have this thing so that I can hide from the orcs that are coming. Wait, there aren't any orcs coming. Instead, he's hearing the sound of conflict from above. He's hearing the forces of evil do that thing that the forces of evil always do. He is hearing them turn on each other and turn on themselves and destroy even on the, the brink of their moment of final victory. He realized that it was not so. His hearing had deceived him. The orc cries came from the tower, whose topmost horn was now right above him on the left hand of the cleft. Wait, if there is conflict up there, if the orcs are fighting among themselves, maybe they are tormenting Frodo or even savagely hacking him to pieces. This is his next thought, right? Again, I think we can discern the influence of the ring here. Oh no, sounds of conflict. Orcs are coming. No, wait, orcs are fighting each other. Oh, maybe they're hacking Frodo to pieces. That's no good. He listened, and as he did so, a gleam of hope came to him. There could not be much doubt. There was fighting in the tower, the orcs must be at war among themselves. The sounds of combat and of conflict, those aren't the sounds of them torturing Frodo or even killing Frodo. Frodo cannot, in this moment, fight back. Not least of all, of course, because Frodo is unarmed at this moment. He can't be fighting back, so if there is a sound of conflict, it must be the orcs fighting amongst themselves. Sam here astutely and almost casually rejecting the implication of the ring. No, there is still hope. Orcs aren't coming. He does not need to be glad of the ring. No, orcs are not killing Frodo. He does not need to now push on into Mordor, drawing ever closer to Mount Doom, drawing ever closer to Barad-dûr, which is, if you draw a line from Kirith Ungol to Mount Doom, like Barad-dûr is just on the other side of, of the peak of Rodruin there. So he's not hopeless. He is not with that. He's not able at this point to set aside his charge to rescue his master, to set aside his quest to rescue his master. Instead, he is capable of perceiving through the, the veil of illusion and of fear that the ring has wrought at this point. His love for Frodo rose above all other thoughts and forgetting his peril, he cried out, I'm coming, Mr. Frodo. He ran down to the climbing path and over it. At once the road turned left and plunged steeply down. Sam had crossed into Mordor. Remember how just a moment ago he couldn't cross into Mordor. He couldn't force himself. For the moment, he could drive himself no further. He could not take that step into Mordor for fear that once he did, he would never escape. That was... That was it. He is suspended in that moment of fear, which is how the ring gets to him in the first place, urging him to, to put the ring on but he overcomes it because of his love for Frodo. And then, just as casually, at once the road turned left and plunged steeply down, Sam had crossed into Mordor. He took off the ring, moved it maybe by some deep premonition of danger. Though to himself, he thought only that he wished to see more clearly. Better have a look at the worst, he muttered. No good blundering about in the fog. So not only is he now 
not seeking refuge in the, the invisibility afforded him by the ring. Not only is he trying to veil himself from the world, he's actually embracing the physical reality of the world around him, perhaps because of some premonition of danger, as it acknowledges here, perhaps because of some greater wisdom that, that beats within the fragile heart of Samwise Gamgee, but also... He's not swayed by his gladness of the ring. He's still not seeing the ring as an ally. He does for just that moment. He was glad of the ring because of the company of orcs that's coming down the road. Except not so much. But the ring is not done with, uh, with Samwise Gamgee at this point. Let me see here. Uh, I'm just catching up with the chat. Yes, good, good. The ring was an inept briber of Sam, says Varig of Kant. That's why Sam's a hero. Yes, and Andre observing, he removes the ring to see more clearly. Yes, exactly. He still wants to be in the world and of the world. And I think that you can, I think that you can abstract out from that if you are so inclined. A, a continuation of an argument that is made or of a a philosophical proposition which is offered to us back in the pages of book five, right? We talked last time about Pippin there during his last stand at the Battle of the Moranon, just wishing that he could see the, the clean grass again, that he could have this very natural and very mundane experience. Sam is now, even in great adversity, in the midst of great adversity, still choosing reality rather than the ghostly wraith-like images of of the the wearing of the ring, right? Whatever the ring does to you, pulling you into the wraith realm in, in, in whatever way we, we want to describe that or approach that. Rather than see the world imperfectly in ghostly fashion, he wants to see the literal world. Rather than scrying out the movement of his enemy and the movement of his allies through a palantir as Denethor did, he wants to see the real world. He doesn't want to have his perception corrupted in that way. But the ring is not done. His thought turned to the ring, but there was no comfort there, only dread and danger. No sooner had he come in sight of Mount Doom burning far away than he was aware of a change in his burden. As it drew near the great furnaces where in the deeps of time it had been shaped and forged, the ring's power grew, and it became more fell, untamable, save by some mighty will. As Sam stood there, even though the ring was not on him, but hanging by its chain about his neck, he felt himself enlarged, as if he were robed in a huge, distorted shadow of himself. A vast and ominous threat halted upon the walls of Mordor. He felt that he had from now on only two choices— to forbear the ring though it would torment him, or to claim it and challenge the power that sat in its dark hold beyond the Valley of Shadows. Already the ring tempted him, knowing at his will and reason. Wild fantasies arose in his mind, and he saw Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across the darkened land, and armies flocking to his call as he marched to the overthrow of Barad-dûr. And then all the clouds rolled away, and the white sun shone, and at his command the Vale of Gorgoroth became a garden of flowers and trees and brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own, and all this could be. In that hour of trial, it was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm. But also, deep down in him lived still unconquered his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. And anyway, all these notions are only a trick, he said to himself. He'd spot me now and cow me before I could so much as shout out. He'd spot me pretty quick if I put the ring on now in Mordor. And all I can say is, things look as hopeless as a frost in spring. Just when being invisible would be really useful, I can't use the ring. And if ever I get any further, it's going to be nothing but a drag and a burden every step. So what's to be done? He was not really in any doubt. 
He knew that he must go down to the gate and not linger any more. With a shrug of his shoulders, as if to shake off the shadow and dismiss the phantoms, he began slowly to descend. With each step, he seemed to diminish. He had not gone far before he had shrunk again to a very small and frightened hobbit. He was now passing under the very walls of the tower, and the cries and sounds of fighting could be heard with his unaided ears. At the moment, the noise seemed to be coming from the court behind the outer wall. This, then, is the temptation of Samwise Gamgee. This is the long-awaited, long-foreshadowed temptation of Samwise Gamgee. Oh, the ring can't keep you safe from marauding orcs. Oh, the ring can't convince you that Frodo is right now being hacked savagely to pieces and that you probably should just carry on to the crack of doom, like you should bear your burden on into Mordor and, you know, maybe just surrender it to Sauron at some point, maybe be taken by the forces of the enemy and surrender up the ring to the great foe. Well, okay. If we can't do that then let's do this. You, Samwise Gamgee, Samwise the strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across the darkened land, armies flocking to his call as he marched to the overthrow of Barador. And then, at his command, the Vale of Gorgoroth became a garden of flowers and trees and brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own, and all this could be. The ring is transformed here, presumably not simply by virtue of its proximity to Mount Doom, not even by virtue of the line of sight to Mount Doom. I think that we can be fairly certain that what has changed in the ring here is its explicit desire to dominate Sam rather than manipulate Sam, and also Sam's strength of will himself. He is now more mindful of the antiquity and power of the ring than he has ever been. Hey, there's Mount Doom. Like, Right there. That is where the ring was forged. Uh, as it drew near the great furnaces where in the deeps of time it had been shaped and forged, the ring's power grew and it became more fell, untamable, save by some mighty will. Well, it's not going to be tamed by a mighty will, but it is going to be resisted by a mighty will. It's going to be resisted by Samwise Gamgee because, well, he is not great. He is not a hero of the age. He is not a king or a leader or a ruler. He is a very small hobbit. As Sam stood there, even though the ring were not on him but hanging by its chain about his neck, he felt himself enlarged as if he were robed in a huge distorted shadow of himself. A vast and ominous threat halted upon the walls of Mordor. All he has to do is claim the ring. And that is now a definite and specific temptation in a way that it wasn't before. He's worn the ring a couple of times now. He wore the ring just quite casually, mere moments ago. But now, he felt that he had from now on only two choices. He can only do two things now. Using the ring casually, not an option anymore. He cannot use the ring for its, its uh, power of invisibility anymore. He has two choices. To forbear the ring, though it would torment him, or to claim it and challenge the power that's set in its dark hold beyond the Valley of Shadows. It is now, well, the ring is itself uncloaked in some way now. It is not going to be a, a tool to be put to use anymore. Now it is going to be the fullest measure, or it is going to exhibit and embody the fullest measure of its power. And he can resist it, he can forsake it, even though he will be continually tormented by the temptation, or he can embrace it but he's not going to embrace it. Not even the flowering of the plateau of Gorgoroth is sufficient to sway Samwise Gamgee because deep down he has two characteristics that cannot be overcome. In that hour of trial, 
It was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm. But also deep down in him lived still unconquered his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions, visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm. Like Galadriel for example, and Lothlorien, right? The temptation of the ring for Galadriel is the swelling of a garden to a realm. It is the, the bringing of beauty, the, the betterment, I suppose, of all of Middle-earth, the making glorious and wondrous of all of Middle-earth, though she herself would fall under the shadow and ultimately, of course, all would turn to tyranny and despair. So there are three things holding Sam back here. The first and the most important, the, the narrative is very clear, it was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm. It is his loyalty to Frodo that keeps him steady here, that prevents him from taking up the ring, because to take up the ring and to challenge the shadow, right, that would require him to uh, leave Frodo behind. That's not a part of his plan, is the rescuing of Frodo. That's insignificant to Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across across, uh, Mordor. That's not an important part of that path, right? He, he can't reconcile those two things. So the love of his master keeps him true, keeps him, keeps him honest in this moment, but also deep down his plain hobbit sense. He knew that in the core of his heart, he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. And look at the next line of attributed dialogue, right? After he has resolved this, his plain hobbit sense is also anchoring him. No, I'm not actually capable of being Samwise the Strong. I'm not actually... I don't have it in me to be a great hero of the age, ring or no ring. That is not who I am. That is not my path, my destiny. It is not within my capability. The ring speaks to one's desire for power and the actual power already possessed by each individual, right? That is how the ring speaks to Boromir, for example, though obviously less compellingly to Faramir, but that's just because Faramir is a better dude, I suppose. But the ring cannot find purchase within Sam because deep down his hobbit sense says... No, actually, Sam, you're nothing special. And that's a great thing. That is a good thing. You have your place in the world in a way that Boromir, for example, does not. That that dissatisfaction with the status quo of the world, I suppose, is part of the rings or, or is a means by which the ring might corrupt any given individual. That's how it tries to get to, to Boromir. It's how it tries to get to Galadriel, right? How does the ring get to Galadriel? Well, Galadriel is tempted by the imperfection in the world and the possibility of making it more beautiful, but Sam doesn't feel that, that tug of greatness. So we have the love of Frodo in the first place, his plain hobbit sense in the second place. You'll note, not a specific quality of of Samwise Gamgee-ness there, but rather just hobbit sense. Good hobbits are going to feel this way because good hobbits are not large, are not are not heroes of the age. And then we get the confirmation, the kind of uh, attributed confirmation of the beat of speculation that we get mere moments before. Even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him, and then Sam speaks aloud. And anyway, all these notions are only a trick, he said to himself. He'd spot me and cow me before I could so much as shout out. He'd spot me pretty quick if I put the ring on now in Mordor. Well, all I can say is things look as hopeless as a frost in spring. Just when being invisible would be really useful, I can't use the ring. And if I ever get any further, it's going to be nothing but a drag and a burden every step. So what's to be done? He was not really in any doubt. Even then, even as he's saying, well, God, okay, so my options are either take up the ring, which I can't do, or forsake the ring, which is just going to, to weigh upon me with every single step that I take closer to Orodoro and every single step that I take closer to my goal, every single step that I take closer to Frodo, the ring is going to weigh more and more and more. And what is to be done? There is no hope. It's as hopeless as a frost in spring, he says. 
but he was never really in any doubt. He knew that he must go down to the gate and not linger anymore. With a shrug of his shoulders, as if to shake off the shadow and dismiss the phantoms, he began slowly to descend. And thus, he passes the test and will go into Mordor and remain Samwise. This is the greatest and most powerful temptation of the ring in all the pages of The Lord of the Rings, right? The temptation for Boromir is is pretty thin, actually. And the temptation of Galadriel long-standing is also, relatively speaking, quite insubstantial. But now Sam, faced with a greater opposition and a greater challenge than either Boromir or Galadriel, faced with a greater challenge and opposition um, proportionally, I suppose, than, than anyone who has ever been in proximity to the ring at all, with the possible exception of Frodo, faced with this opposition, he still resists it. And with a shrug, casts off the shadow, casts off the darkness, casts off the phantoms, and becomes again just Samwise Gamgee, cowed and afraid, very small and frightened hobbit. He was now passing under the very walls of the tower, and the cries and sounds of fighting could be heard with unaided ears. It's just fantastic. Um, Isaac saying here, Sam resists because he is he knows he is not great. That's my point with Faramir and Boromir. Faramir is completely accepting of his role as second son and doesn't view himself as great. Boromir has the weight of greatness on him. Um, I'm not completely sure that I agree with that. I think that specifically within the frame, you're absolutely right, right? That Boromir as the more beloved son of Denethor and a even greater representation of the blood of Numenor than, than Faramir, um, Boromir does have a certain greatness thrust upon him, right? He is not entirely responsible for his role in the world or for the way that the world sees him, I suppose, or for the potential good that he can create, thanks to his strength of arms and strength of will and, and strength of blood, right? Boromir is a great man. You're absolutely right. Faramir, too, though, is a great man, at least potentially. The difference between Boromir and Faramir is, in a way, the difference between Denethor and Theoden. Denethor is dissatisfied. He's not just talking about... Remember when at, at the pyre of Denethor, Gandalf says, what would you, what, what would you have? If you could order the world as you desire, what would you have? And, and we get like a version of a, a, uh, a ring temptation speech here as Denethor lays it all out. And remember, we also got a, a version of a ring temptation speech from Faramir all the way back in Ithilien. Denethor says... I would have my son be his own man. I would have him not be the pupil of a wizard. I would preserve the, the glory of my house and of my lineage, and it would be my choice, and I would have control. I would have dominion. Likewise, Boromir wants control. Remember when he's he's raving at Frodo about what he would do, and he starts talking about military strategy, and he starts talking about like the conquest of Mordor, and then he kind of effortlessly segues into, oh, and also people would think I was amazing, and I would be the greatest king ever, and I would have, again, control. I would have dominion here. Faramir doesn't want that. Faramir sees himself very much as Sam sees himself as a servant. He is a steward in the truest sense. Now, Sam is the steward of the small garden afforded a free gardener, right? And Faramir is the steward, literally now the steward of Gondor. He is, he is more capable of embracing that service role than either his brother or his father. Gandalf too, right? A steward of, of Middle-earth. Galadriel, at her best, a steward of Lothlorien, a steward of this, this legacy of the elves. Elrond, absolutely a steward of the legacy of the elves in Rivendell. This role of service, a role that we have seen also associated with, with uh, 
Aragorn too. The duty of service and the genuine love of service is not incompatible with greatness. There are different scales here. No one is going to say that Gandalf isn't great, or no one is going to say that Aragorn isn't great, or even I would argue that Faramir isn't great. They all are. So the ring has a greater potential to, to corrupt them and to, to get its hooks into them. But that role of service, I think, is what distinguishes. It is not, uh, you'll note here, um, there's a very specific beat here. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, right? That's the first half of this thought. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due. That is all that he needs and all that he deserves. He is small. He is a small hobbit. So a small garden for a small gardener, that's right. That is that is in accord with his understanding of the workings of the world. And you remember all the way back at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, we're talking about people owning land and and kind of, and we'll circle back around to this at the end of The Return of the King too, of course, that this, this semi-anarchic kind of uh, uh, social structure in the Shire suggests that actually, no, people just have what they can interact with directly. People ought to have what they can interact with directly. The accumulation of property, the accumulation of wealth, these are not good things in Hobbit culture. These are not good things, it would seem, in any culture. The desire for greater power necessitates the desire for dominion and the desire for control. Because the second half of that thought, the one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. The hands of others to command is always going to be a problematic idea within the frame of the Lord of the Rings, because as soon as we seek to dominate others and to turn them into tools to to turn them to our cause and not their own cause, not a collaborative cause, then we have left the path of wisdom. That is true of Sauron, of course. That is true of, of Saruman too. It is true of Denethor and his desire to preserve the lineage of the stewards of Gondor. When he removes Faramir's agency, when he makes the decision for Faramir that now is the time for Faramir to die, right? That is a decision that Denethor is making for himself. He is objectifying. He is rendering less than human his own son. And anytime we start to do that, and again, of course, we're going to get a very powerful exploration of this when we circle back to the Shire at the end of The Return of the King. Anytime we seek to do that, yeah, we've left the path of, of wisdom. So, for me, it isn't necessarily about greatness. Is is Sam great with a capital G? Well, okay, no. Sam is not great with a capital G, but Sam is a great hobbit. Sam is a very good hobbit. He is a, a hobbit par excellence in the same way as Faramir is an excellent man of Gondor and Gandalf is an excellent wizard and, and Elrond is an excellent elf, right? They all embody excellence. They are on different scales. They absolutely are. This is one of the things I think that, that we struggle with, particularly in the 21st century, century particularly within the United States. Uh, this is one of the things that we struggle with, that, that actually there isn't just complete and transparent social mobility, right? Which is one of the great myths of America anyway. That is the foundational myth that leads to the, the greater myth of the American dream, right? In order for the American dream to work, you have to to have utter and, and accessible and transparent social mobility, which has in most instances, in most parts of the United States, in most periods of history, simply not existed. That, that just isn't a true thing. But you need that in order to have the American dream. So, so Sam is never going to be elevated into a position of, of, of 
gentle hobbitness. He is never going to become part of the landowning classes in the Shire. He is never going to swell his garden beyond the small garden afforded a free gardener to a garden the size of a realm. He's not going to... He does not have that capability. That is not in his in his future. But that doesn't mean that he isn't great at being Samwise Gamgee, I suppose. We must move on. We absolutely must move on. Um, let me see here. Let me. Ca- I'll catch up with some of the chat. There's been so much here in the chat. Um, oh, this is interesting. Marshall's quoting uh, Marshall's quote, uh, quoting T. H. White from the Once and Future King, which I think we're going to end up discussing over in the Dear Mr. Potter podcast at some point toward the end of the summer. Uh, quoting from uh, quoting from the Once and Future King, he was one of those people who would be neither a leader nor a follower, but only an aspiring heart, impatient in the failing body which imprisoned it. That's just lovely. That is just lovely. Seastar says, I like this quite a lot. Sam is good, but not great. Denethor is great, but not good. Faramir is great and good. Orcs are neither great nor good. Wow. That's, um, that's very good. I, I, I like that quite a lot. I would be immediately tempted to add a third, um, a third metric to that list that would speak to that would speak to something connected to that 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 um, that act of service that we've been talking about that that service role that we've been talking about perhaps grace perhaps grace would be the alliterative third metric that we could use right if if we measure goodness greatness and gracefulness or 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 uh, the capacity for grace because I would argue that Boromir is good and great but he is not graceful. In that sense, and, and again, graceful not in the sense of being elegant, but graceful in the sense of possessing grace, right? Aragorn is good and great and graceful. Faramir is good and great and graceful. I think there, there may be some uh, Prince Imrahil of Dol Amroth, for all that we know, for all that we are allowed to believe in Book 5, good and great and graceful. It's, it's, I would want to incorporate that idea of service and of condescension that we have discussed so often in uh, association with, uh, with uh, Aragorn there too. Yeah, good. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Let's keep moving on now that we've covered a whole uh, three slides in the first half of today's session. (laughs) Let's keep going and get to one of the most enigmatic and and provocative and bewitching details of this part of the book, arguably one of the most enigmatic details in the entire book. I still, after all of these years, don't know what to make of the Watchers, but here we go. Come on, you miserable sluggard, Sam cried to himself. Now for it! He drew Sting and ran toward the open gate, but just as he was about to pass under its great arch, he felt a shock, as if he had run into some web like Shelob's only invisible. He could see no obstacle, but something too strong for his will to overcome barred the way. He looked about, and then within the shadow of the gate he saw the two watchers. They were like great figures seated upon thrones. Each had three joined bodies and three heads facing outward and inward and across the gateway. The heads had vulture faces, and on their great knees were laid claw-like hands. They seemed to be carved out of huge blocks of stone, immovable, and yet they were aware. Some dreadful spirit of evil vigilance abode in them. They knew an enemy. Visible or invisible, none could pass unheeded. They would forbid his entry or his escape. Hardening his will, Sam thrust forward once again and halted with a jerk, staggering as if from a blow upon his breast and head. Then, greatly daring because he could think of nothing else to do, answering a sudden thought that came to him, he drew slowly out the phial of Galadriel and held it up. Its white light quickened swiftly, and the shadows under the dark arch fled. The monstrous watchers sat there cold and still, revealed in all their hideous shape. For a moment, Sam caught a glitter in the black stones of their eyes, the very malice of which made him quail, but slowly he felt their will waver and crumble into fear. 
He sprang past them, but even as he did so, thrusting the file back into his bosom, he was aware as plainly as if a bar of steel had snapped to behind him that their vigilance was renewed. And from those evil heads there came a high, shrill cry that echoed in the towering walls before him. Far up above, like an answering signal, a harsh bell clanged a single stroke. Seastar says, I want to seek out fan art of these watchers. Uh, yes, yes, it's uh, very, uh, a very enchanting detail here. I want to pull back to this point here by, uh, by Marshall. Marshall says, I'm sure this has been discussed at some point in the series. This is only my second live session of Taba, and I'm only halfway through The Hobbit in the podcast. But the position of the orcs has always been interesting, since creating an always chaotic, chaotic evil race goes in direct opposition to Tolkien's belief in free will. It's almost implied that orcishness is a state of being, and if the orcs turn to good, they would in fact cease to be orcs. We have talked about this a little bit, but I have also received some questions about this lately, and um, it's more relevant than ever, of course, particularly within the span of today's reading, since we're going to be talking a little about uh, orcs and their malice and their propensity for both violence and vulgarity, I suppose. Um, the problem with orcs, the problem with orcs is the problem of redemption, right? If you are right and that orcishness is a state of mind, and thus if orcs could just stop being orcs, then they would no longer be orcs. If orcs could stop being evil, they could be redeemed and they could be elevated. They could be returned to a state of grace like the other races of, of Middle-earth. Then we run into a huge moral problem, which is the gleeful and reckless slaying of orcs throughout the Lord of the Rings, right? It is problematic, if that is the case, that Legolas and Gimli have a super fun game about how many orcs they can kill. If orcs are are sentient and, and sapient and possessed of the, the capacity for redemption, then that becomes super problematic in a moral sense. If orcs are not that, then we are excused from any kind of moral burden associated with the slaying of orcs. We are freed from any kind of moral implication. That is to say that if orcs are basically, you know, um, uh, golems, if they are, as in one version of Tolkien's Legendarium had it, if they are forged of the, 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 the earth and the slime, the dirt and the slime of Middle-earth, that they are not real creatures. They're actually just a, a simulacrum of, of life on Middle-earth, of, of sapient life on Middle-earth, then actually killing them carries no moral weight whatsoever because you're not killing a creature as much as you are destroying a twisted misrepresentation of a creature, if that makes sense. There is also the argument that orcs may be sapient and and possessed of some kind of soul, some kind of fea within the, the, the construct of, of Tolkien's legendarium here, but that there is no hope for redemption. And if there is no hope for redemption, then we are also technically, kind of, uh, if you do the moral calculus on it, then you are freed from any kind of moral opposition to the slaying of orcs. You know what? Actually, we're going to get an opportunity to talk about orcs right at the end of, of this chapter, because Frodo is going to give us a perspective on orcs that we'll circle back around to. But yes, uh, Marshall, you will hear some more discussions of this topic as we move forward uh, through the podcast, as you pick up in the middle of The Hobbit and, and move up toward the present day discussions. But yeah, it is an ongoing it is an ongoing problem. Um, Jackie's saying, uh, I kind of just have to see the orcs as minions and simple Simply minions, because otherwise it's too hard. Um, yes, that that is kind of how I feel about it too. The I can see the the relative lack of moral consequence to the slaying of orcs if orcs are sapient and possessed of of fea, if they are possessed of a soul, but the corruption is permanent and 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 irreversible, I suppose. Then slaying them could actually be seen as a kindness, though even then it is something that we should. 
enter into with a heavier heart than Legolas and Gimli do. It is an imprecise and incomplete, and Marshall, perhaps I haven't addressed this in the point of the podcast where, where, you've, uh, where you have so far reached, but Tolkien never quite pinned down an origin story for the orcs. There are several origin stories offered through the, the different versions of the Legendarium crafted through his lifetime, but none of them are, are definitive. We, we just don't know where orcs come from. They may be corrupted elves, they may be forged of, of dirt and slime, we just don't know. So speculating in that area is is super fun, which is why I'm I'm basically always called back to it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Marshall's saying it's morally and theologically unsettling, however you cut it, which is why Tolkien never gave himself a, a satisfying answer. Um, yes, uh, satisfying, comprehensive, I suppose, is, is the word that I would use there. Um, a An explanation of the creation of orcs that accounts for everything that orcs have to be both in the present of the Lord of the Rings and in the deep past of the Silmarillion and everything in between. Um, yeah, I, I, like Jackie, am tempted to see the creation of orcs as being a dark echo of the creation of the dwarves by Aule. That is that they are crafted from the stone of Middle-earth. Iluvatar grants into the dwarves Fea. He grants into the dwarves an actual spirit and an awareness. At least he seems to more on that when we talk about the Silmarillion, I suppose, in a few months' time. Um, but if the orcs are kind of a twisted perversion of even that act of creation, then we don't have to worry about it at all. They're basically putties from Power Rangers is what it comes down to, right? They are basically disposable enemies. This, by the way, is a huge problem right now in in mass market fantasy storytelling. This is a huge problem for you know, people who make Marvel movies and people who make DC movies and people who make any kind of fantasy adventure story. This is why we are pulling away from the idea of, of living, thinking, ensouled enemies that we can slay by the bucket load and moving instead to clearly inhuman or non-human enemies, whether that's, you know, insectoid alien races or robots or whatever, right? We, we like... Or we like to. Um, we are finding it more and more necessary to resolve this outstanding philosophical point by rendering our massed rank of enemies in less than human terms so that we can dodge this bullet. But yeah, yeah. Okay, let's, um, let's keep going here. Um, let me see. I think we're done with this. I think we're, the Watchers, you guys, the Watchers are utterly, utterly fascinating. This uh, this tripartite structure each had three joined bodies and three heads facing outward and inward and across the gateway. The heads had vulture faces and on their great knees were laid claw-like hands. They seemed to be carved out of huge blocks of stone, immovable, and yet they were aware. Sam is absolutely clear on this point. And yet they were aware. Some dreadful spirit of evil vigilance abode in them. They knew an enemy. Visible or invisible, none could pass unheeded. They would forbid his entry or his escape. We know basically nothing about the Watchers. We get no information about the Watchers in any of the attendant material for the Lord of the Rings, which I find completely fascinating, not least of all because this design is unlike anything else that we've seen in the Lord of the Rings. We are leaning into a uh, a kind of Egyptian, um, a kind of uh, Mesopotamian kind of, of, of history here, uh, or at least an aesthetic representation. These tripartite bodies with tripartite faces, um, three heads facing outward and inward and across the gateway. So on each side, you are kind of, if you imagine the, the arch of the gateway and, and one face on each body is looking south, one face on each body is looking north, and two of the faces are looking at each other in the midst of the gateway. This is, with, with the, the vulture heads there too, this is wildly unsettling. This is 
this is one of those moments that, that gives me that Lovecraftian shiver. It is one of those moments where I'm like, no, I, well, this is Eldritch. This is Eldritch is what this is. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sumerian says Katie. Yes, absolutely. I thought Sumerian when I first read the description. Yes. Uh, Andrea's saying it always feels like a corruption of the seraphim. That's an, that's an, huh. That's a very interesting poll, Andrea. I, I will need to give that. So in terms of representation, at least. Yeah. And in terms of purpose, yeah, in terms of purpose, I'm not sure that I'm 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 necessarily seeing it, but but yeah, no, that that's fascinating. Yes, um, uh, Shane asking, are the Watchers like the statues outside of Minas Morgul? Well, Sam is the one who saw the statues outside of Minas Morgul, so we would expect in this moment for if there was a connection for Sam to draw that connection, but no, we don't we don't get that connection made explicitly here. I am reminded, looking at this, of nothing more than, you know, the last time we saw two Watchers in, in that kind of, of sense, we were at the Argonauts. We saw the, the statue of the, the ancient kings of Gondor with their, their palms outstretched, right, at the Argonauts as we're traveling south down the Anduin. But there doesn't seem to be a connection there either, or a reflection there either. It's it's just, yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Marshall calling out the quote from Ezekiel, each had four faces and four wings. Yes, yes. It's, it's really interesting. Ah, and Jackie calling out, I guess that makes sense as we travel further eastward. Huh, it would, wouldn't it? Because, of course, uh, one of the things that we're doing here is we're moving across uh, the map of Middle-earth. Again, the connection of Middle-earth to the real world is pretty, th is relatively speaking pretty thin by the time that we arrive at the publication of The Lord of the Rings. But in the deeper histories that Tolkien wrote, this was supposed to be our world. It's clear still that that is like a superficial intent, but it is much less mythic. It is much less um, an explanatory myth, I suppose, than it was originally conceived as. Uh, this was supposed to be not just the Lord of the Rings, but like the breadth of Tolkien's legendarium was supposed to be the mythic history of England specifically. It was supposed to give England the same kind of, of mythic underpinning as many European countries possessed, you know, like Anglo-Saxon culture or, or the French culture even, right? right? The, the romantic histories of of, of Italy, the broader, deeper histories of, of ancient Rome and of ancient Greece, going all the way out to, to you know, Turkey and to Persia and beyond. Um, yes, I suppose, actually, yeah, being down here in the southeast and approaching that kind of frontier, this could be, for Tolkien, a relic of some, some ancient and alternative culture from further east, from the unknowable easts of Middle-earth. I, I like that quite a lot, yeah. Yeah, uh, Varric's calling out the Pucklestones, too, which we have brief reference to when uh, when Mary's drawing that connection, when he meets uh, when he meets Khan Buri Khan, right? An op another opportunity to say my favorite name in in uh, Book 5 of The Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, he, he draws reference to the Pucklestones, and Varric is observing, of course, that that's explored more in Unfinished Tales, too. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, Shane says, maybe if the Numenorians built it like the Argonauts and the Slaves of Mordor corrupted it like the fall king on the crossroads after hundreds of years, it would be ugly and accursed and deformed. I'm very into that idea, Shane. I like that idea very much, except that the narrative gives us no sense that that is the case. I mean, I would expect if this were a product of, of orcish craft, I would expect there to be some of the usual adjectives used, right? It would be crude and it would be ill-formed and it would be, it would be fell in its intent. But we don't get any of that, right? The heads had the, the they were like great figures seated upon thrones. Each had three joined bodies and three heads facing outward and inward and across the gateway. The heads had vulture faces and on their great knees were laid claw-like hands. They seemed to be carved out of huge blocks of stone, immovable, and yet they were aware. We don't get that rough chisel marks or any of the other stuff. Yeah, 
it's it's just enigmatic and fantastic, and I love it. And we're gonna hopefully get back to the Watchers before we wrap up today. Though this is um, appearing appearing less and less likely. Black Numenorians could have done this thing, says Jackie. Um, yes, certainly. Um, I'm trying to remember if there is anything in in the Silmarillion that would kind of represent this kind of of aesthetic um symbolism in our dealings with Numenor and nothing is springing to mind but but that is an interesting thought yeah yeah potentially at least yeah good okay let's uh keep moving we can't spend too long on on the watchers unfortunately because we've got to get to the elf warrior he had passed beyond the torchlight almost to a great arch door at the end of the passage and uh, the inner side of the undergate as he rightly guessed when there came from high above a dreadful choking shriek he stopped short then he heard feet coming someone was running in great haste down an echoing stairway overhead his will was too weak and slow to restrain his hand it dragged at the chain and clutched the ring but sam did not put it on for even as he clasped it to his breast an orc came clattering down leaping out of a dark opening at the right it ran towards him it was no more than 6 paces from him when lifting its head it saw him and Sam could hear its gasping breath and see the glare in its bloodshot eyes. It stopped short, aghast. For what it saw was not a small, frightened hobbit trying to hold a steady sword. It saw a great, silent shape, cloaked in a grey shadow, looming against the wavering light behind. In one hand it held a sword, the very light of which was a bitter pain. The other was clutched at its breast, but held concealed some nameless menace of power and doom. For a moment, the orc crouched, and then with a hideous yelp of fear, it turned and fled back as it had come. Never was any dog more heartened when its enemy turned tail than Sam at this unexpected flight. With a shout, he gave chase. Yes, the elf warrior is loose, he cried. I'm coming. Just you show me the way up or I'll skin you. But the orc was in its own haunts, nimble and well-fanned. Sam was a stranger, hungry and weary. The stairs were high and steep and winding. Sam's breath beca- began to come in gasps. The orc had soon passed out of sight, and now only faintly could be heard the slapping of its feet as it went on and up. Every now and again it gave a yell and the echo ran along the walls, but slowly all sound of it died away. So Sam is still creeping ever upward here in Kerith Ungle and now is confronted by an orc. But the orc does not see Sam. The orc sees, well something else. It's tempting to say that the orc sees the elf warrior, though of course he doesn't. Let's let's pick apart what is happening here. His will was too weak and slow to restrain his hand. It dragged at the chain and clutched the ring. So again, another moment of weakness. Another. His will was too weak and slow to restrain his hand. The ring is a constant pressure on Sam now, and if his ring, if his will, excuse me, is not, well, the opposite of weak and slow, right? It has to be both swift and strong. It has to be sure and certain, otherwise the ring will just dominate him. His will is too weak and too slow to restrain his hand. It dragged at the chain and clutched the ring, but Sam did not put it on, for even as he clasped it to his breast, right? Sam is about to put on the ring, except in this moment, as he is is clutching it, ready to put it on, the reason that he doesn't, as indicated by that semicolon four construction that we can see here, for even as he clasped it to his breast, an orc came clattering down. He is about to put on the ring, but oh no's, orcs. Leaping out of a dark opening at the right, it ran towards him. It was no more than six paces from him when lifting its head, it saw him and Sam could hear its gasping breath and see the glare in its bloodshot eyes. It stopped short aghast. For what it saw was not a small frightened hobbit trying to hold a steady sword. It saw a great silent shape cloaked in a grey shadow looming against the wavering light behind. In one hand it held a sword, the very light of which was a bitter pain. The other was clutched at its breast but held concealed some nameless menace of power and doom. So the first question what is the orc seeing? Well, the orc is seeing some, some semblance of, some recapitulation of, some visible echo of that 
enlargement that Sam felt when the ring was tempting him, right? Remember when he is feeling large and ready to, to, to march, the hero of the age, to march across Gorgoroth to Baradur and kick some ass? That is the same kind of enlargement, the shadowy enlargement. He sees the blade with the bitter pain and at his breast held concealed some nameless menace of power and doom. This is not Sam using the ring. This is not even necessarily the ring's conscious and purposeful influence. I do not think that the ring in this moment is trying to ward off this orc. This is not a observable, uh, reproducible power of the ring that we have noticed before. This is just the manifestation of the power of the ring to those who are attuned to see such things. When you have lived so long under the shadow, you become more accustomed to the shadow. You can, as you, you know, wear the ring or, or are exposed to the Nazgul, you begin to enter into that wraith realm. And so you are able to discern and perceive power in a more raw form. So the orc beholds the power of the ring and flees. For a moment, the orc crouched, and then with a hideous yelp of fear, it turned and fled back as it had come. Never was any dog more heartened when its enemy turned tail than Sam Sam at this unexpected flight. With a shout, he gave chase. Yes, the elf warrior is loose. He cried, I'm coming. Just you show me the way up or I'll skin you. Sam clearly does not know what the orc perceives. And I'm going to forestall the possible uh, conversational tangent here because, yeah, we don't know how this is written. We don't know which author of the book, which original author of the book is giving us this account. How does the author of the book know what the orc sees if Sam himself does not see it? Except I suppose that it kind of echoes, it kind of echoes that previous feeling that Sam had. Sam, by no account in this moment, is Sam feeling enlarged again, right? There's no mention of Sam feeling more powerful, feeling cloaked in shadow, feeling like the hero of the age. But if Sam is writing this account after the fact, and he's telling the story of, well, there I was in Kirith Ungle, and an orc came out, and it was six paces away from me, and it turned tail and fled. Oh, maybe it was seeing me the way that I felt before. Maybe maybe that's what the connection was. So I want to kind of forestall that, because those conversations, as fascinating as they are, are endless. And there's really no resolution that we can come to. But it is clear in the narrative intent here that the orc beholds Sam as this this great and shadowy figure with the the, the piercing blade and the the great and terrible doom at at its breast. And Sam gives chase. But Sam is feeling something else, feeling something different. The elf warrior is loose, he cried. I'm coming, just you show me the way up or I'll skin you. He's not... Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, he's the elf warrior. Here he is bearing his his elven blade, wearing his elven cloak, embodying that that spirit of of heroism, I suppose. But it's a very different spirit of heroism, yeah. Um. (laughs) Shane says... Shane's giving us a little uh, a little one-act play here. Sam, come back to the elf warrior! Narrator, Sam was not an elf warrior, doing a little uh, Arrested Development thing there. Yes, very good, very good. I can't believe that the new season of Arrested Development has dropped already. Um, I'm going to have to catch up with that at some point, but yes, yeah. Sam naming himself the elf warrior, says Jack. He seems like he's trying to bolster his, his courage and strength. Um... And Shane saying, an orc, an orc stopping Sam putting the ring on, is it a minor eucatastrophe? Um... I would argue that, that that rather than you catastrophe in this instance, Shane, I think we're seeing another example of of the self-destructive nature of evil. That if the orcs weren't the this this awful, ravening, fearful, cowardly, savage, violent and vile lot, 
that we wouldn't be in this position in the first place. But but yeah, not not quite eucatastrophe because I don't think we're getting that intrusion of grace. What we're getting instead is that that twisting in and on itself of the intent and purpose of evil, the, the manifest purpose of evil. Yeah, good. Okay. Uh, excellent, excellent, excellent. All right. Let's, oh gosh, I can't believe I'm already so close to, to being out of time today. But uh, let's see if we can do, well, yeah, let's do two more slides and we'll conclude on Samsung. How does that sound? Before we get to Samsung, though, we have to talk about Shagrat and Snaga. At first, Sam did not listen. He took a pace out of the eastward door and looked about. At once he saw that up here the fighting had been fiercest. All the court was choked with dead orcs or their severed and scattered heads and limbs. The place stank of death. A snarl followed by a blow and a cry sent him darting back into hiding. An orc voice rose in anger and he knew it again at once. Harsh, brutal, cold. It was Shagrat speaking, captain of the tower. You won't go again, you say? Curse you, Snaga, you little maggot. If you think I'm so damaged that it's safe to flout me, you're mistaken. Come here and I'll squeeze your eyes out like I did to Radbug just now. And when some new lads come, I'll deal with you. I'll send you to Shelob. They won't come. Not before you're dead, anyway, answered Snaga surlily. I told you twice that Gorbag's swine got to the gate first, and none of ours got out. Lagduf and Mushgash ran away, but they were shot, I saw it from the window, I tell you, and they were the last. Then you must go. I must stay here anyway, but I'm hurt. The black pits take that filthy rebel Gorbag. Shagret's voice trailed off into a string of foul names and curses. I gave him better than I got, but he knifed me the dung before I throttled him. You must go or I'll eat you. News must get through to Lugbors or we'll both be for the black pits. Yes, you too. You won't escape by skulking here. I'm not going down those stairs again, growled Snaga. Be you captain or no? No! Keep your hands off your knife or I'll put an arrow in your guts. You won't be a captain long when they hear about all these goings on. I fought for the tower against those stinking Morgul rats, but a nice mess your two precious captains have made of things, fighting over the swag. That's enough from you, snarled Chagrat. I had my orders. It was Gorberg started it, trying to pinch that pretty shirt. Well, you put his back up being so high and mighty, and he had more sense than you anyway. He told you more than once the most dangerous of those spies were still loose and you wouldn't listen, and you won't listen now. Gorbank was right, I tell you. There's a great fighter about, one of those bloody-handed elves or one of the filthy Tarks. He's coming here, I tell you. You heard the bell. He got past, past the watchers, and that's Tark's work. He's on the stairs, and until he's off them, I'm not going down. Not if you were in Nazgul, I wouldn't. So that's it, is it? yelled Shagrat. You'll do this and not do that. And when he does come, you'll bolt and leave me. No, you won't. I'll put red maggot holes in your belly first. The utterly charming conversation between Shagrat and Snaga. Um, the, Snaga is interesting, right? Snaga is apparently, by all accounts, the name of this orc. At least that was always my reading. But it turns out there is another orc named Snaga in the book. In the third chapter of book three, one of the orcs under the command of Ugluk is also referred to as Snaga. And when I went looking into this, boy, this is obscure. This is an obscure reference. But I went looking in, um, I'm never going to be able to pronounce this, in an essay entitled Words, Phrases, and Passages in Various Tongues in the Lord of the Rings in Parma Eldalamberon, uh, yeah, Parma Eldalamberon, uh, edited by Christopher Gilson. This is a, uh, uh, linguistics um, journal, I suppose. Professor Tolkien wrote uh, an essay for this linguistics journal talking about some of the phrases used in The Lord of the Rings, and apparently Snaga is not a name, it is an insult. Like, Sam is attributing here the, the name to the character in the attributed dialogue, but curse you, Snaga, you little maggot. Snaga is apparently just a, uh, a black speech word meaning, meaning slave or servant. So not apparently his name after all, but I'm just, just yeah, fascinated by that. Um, 
<laughs> Lynn's saying, no wonder Alistair's throat always closes up at the end of these sessions. Too much orc voices lately. I love Gorbag and Shagrat's voices. So much fun. Well, thank you. I'm very glad that you enjoy them. But yes, a lot of fun to read. But boy, howdy, a lot of, a lot of gruffness going on here. We need something more... Uh, more mellifluous. Luckily, when we get into the Silmarillion, I'm going to have the, the, the opportunity to do lots and lots of elf voices. I say lots and lots of elf voices, though there is a surprising lack of attributed dialogue in the Silmarillion. Almost, uh, oh, compared to the Lord of the Rings and even compared to the pages of The Hobbit, almost no attributed dialogue in the Silmarillion because the register is just so, so very different. Um, so this is, uh, yes, Snaga and uh, Shagrat. Of course, um, you'll remember Shagrat and Gorbag from the end of book four of The Lord of the Rings. Shagrat is the Uruk who commands the Tower of Kerith Ungol, right? He is the commanding officer of this particular uh, this particular fortress here. Gorbag is the captain of the Uruks of Minas Morgul. So he is actually under the direct command, or, or was, under the direct command of the Nazgul in Minas Morgul. That is, that is why they kind of have that... Slightly combative relationship. Shagrat rules Kirith Ungol or, or, or commands Kirith Ungol would probably be a better verb there, whereas Gorbag commands the orcs of Minas Morgul. Um, you know, and, and thus there is a tension between the two of them. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, Glumenson is saying, um, I'm, I'm tracking back here. Oh, Marshall's saying, does anyone else feel like the speech patterns of the orcs are closer to the end of the 20th century than the heroic characters are, especially when they start talking about military matters? And Glowenson puts his finger on it directly, I think, perhaps to demonstrate Tolkien's views on the 20th century. I would actually argue that it's, it's, it is early 20th century, but I think you can also trace back the specific speech patterns of the orcs to the uh, to the mills of the Industrial Revolution, right? You're really looking at kind of mid to late 19th century kind of uh, formulations here. You kind of have to shake that a little bit to make it work. You have to distill out all of the the black speech and the the, the fictional terms created by Tolkien for you know his constructed languages within the frame of the Lord of the Rings. But if you shake it all out, there is a there is an association between like you know the mills of Northern England in particular, the 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 foul reeking smoke of Mordor and the industrialism of Northern England during uh, during the middle and latter part of the 19th centuries. Yes, that's absolutely uh, a reference that I believe Professor Tolkien is making and, and has confirmed in, in letters and in further writings on that topic too, yeah. Okay, so here we see the, the, the conflict between uh, between Snaga, if indeed that is his name, and, uh, and Shagrat. They won't come, not before you're dead anyway. So this is the um, this is in response to Shagrat's threat. When some new lads come, I'll deal with you. I'll send you to Shelob. They won't come, not before you're dead anyway. I've told you twice that Gorbag Swine got out the gate first and none of ours got out. Lagdof and Mujgesh ran through, but they were shot. I saw it from the window, I tell you, and they were the last. Oh, there are now no orcs remaining in Kirith Ungol. The last of them have been slain. None of their men got out. Then you must go, says Shagrat. I must stay here anyway, but I'm hurt. The black pits take the filthy rebel Gorbag. Um, I gave him better than I got, but he knifed me the dung before I throttled him. You must go or I'll eat you. News must get through to Lugburs or we'll both be for the black pits. News must must get through to Lugburs. News has to get to Barador. It has to get back to Sauron. Uh, some uh, messenger has to be sent forth from Kirith Ungol to update Sauron on what is happening vis-a-vis the... Um, the uh, the Hobbit spy that has been captured, I suppose. Or are there two Hobbit spies? Well, no one can say for sure. Um, I'm not going down the stairs again, growled Snaga. Be you captain or no nar, keep your hands off your knife or put an arrow in your guts. So we're seeing that, the, again, the corruption of, of evil versus evil. Evil inevitably leads to its own self-destruction. There is no loyalty. There is no love. There is only fear. Fear and the the... 
the grim duty to preserve one's own life and position, I suppose. A, a personal duty, not a loyalty to anything external or anything greater. Yeah. Um, good. Katie asking, can we do a book club or a one shot on Redwall? Good Lord, that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Katie, do me a favor. Send me an email, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com and remind me uh, to do that thing because, yeah, I am actually uh, putting together my one-shot schedule. Some of you may have noticed that the um, <laughs> that the promised one-shot for uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's fantastic Hamilton has not yet appeared. It will appear within the next few... Well, not within the next couple of weeks, but it will appear probably before the end of June. Uh, it was supposed to be this week, but as I say, Memorial Day kind of screwed up my podcast schedule this week. But if you remind me, then I will add that to the list. That would be fascinating. Yes, I haven't thought about Redwall in depth, uh, Redwall in depth for quite some time. But yeah, good, good. All right, let's um, let's get to Sam's song. This is going to be. I, I have a slightly shorter session even than usual this time. So let's do Sam's song, and then we will wrap up. At last, weary and feeling finally defeated. He sat on a step below the level of the passage floor and bowed his head into his hands. It was quiet, horribly quiet. The torch that was already burning low when he arrived sputtered and went out, and he felt the darkness cover him like a tide. And then, softly, to his own surprise, there at the vain end of his long journey and his grief, moved by what he thought in his heart he could not tell, uh, excuse, me, excuse me, moved by what thought in his heart he could not tell, Sam began to sing. His voice sounded thin and quavering in the cold, dark tower, the voice of a forlorn and weary hobbit that no listening orc could possibly mistake for the clear song of an elven lord. He murmured old childish tunes out of the shire and snatches of Mr. Bilbo's rhymes that came into his mind like fleeting glimpses of the country of his home. And then suddenly new strength rose in him, and his voice rang out while words of his own came unbidden to fit the simple tune. In western lands beneath the sun the flowers may rise in spring, the trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing— or there may be tis cloudless night and swaying beaches bare, the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. Though here at journey's end I lie, in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun, and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. Beyond all towers strong and high, he began again, and then he stopped short. He thought that he had heard a faint voice answering him, but now he could hear nothing. Yes, he could hear something, but not a voice. Footsteps were approaching. Now a door was being opened quietly in the passage above. The hinges creaked. Sam crouched down, listening. The door closed with a dull thud, and then a snarling orc voice rang out. The situation here is hopeless. Sam simply cannot find Frodo. The singing of the song somewhat you catastrophically, will lead to the reveal of the trapdoor in the ceiling that will afford access to the uh, to the cell room where Frodo is currently being kept and will lead ultimate, ultimately to the reunification between Sam and Frodo. More on that, I guess, next week. What I want to talk about, though, is Sam's song. It's just lovely. So there he is. He's feeling defeated, right? He's feeling hopeless. He's feeling despair. There is now nothing driving him on anymore. He sat in the step below the level of the passage floor and bowed his hand, head into his hands. It was quiet, horribly quiet. So we have the, as, as he himself is still, he puts his head in his hands and we have the descending silence around him. Then the torch that was already burning low goes out. So we have the descending darkness around him too. All thought and sensation is ceased in this moment. The darkness covers him like a tide, and then softly, to his own surprise, there at the vain end of his long journey and his grief, moved by what thought in his heart he could not tell, Sam began to sing. To his surprise, and without any explanation whatsoever, Sam begins to sing. 
And he begins in a very hobbitish register, I suppose. His voice sounded thin and quavering in the cold dark tower, the voice of a forlorn and weary hobbit that no listening orc could possibly mistake for the clear song of an elven lord. He murmured old childish tunes out of the shire and snatches of Mr. Bilbo's rhymes that came into his mind like fleeting glimpses of the country of his home. So he begins with old rhymes, old, old nursery rhymes, and then snatches of Bilbo's poetry too, these old, simple tunes and songs that connect him back to his memory of his home, yes, to his ancestral homeland, yes, but also to his own childhood, also to that own, to his own period of, of innocence and, and optimism, of hope, perhaps, to something more simple and something more pure. And then suddenly new strength rose in him and his voice rang out while words of his own came unbidden to fit the simple tune. Without thinking about it, without a conscious act of creation, Sam is composing poetry here. He is singing a spontaneous song and what a spontaneous song it is. In western lands beneath the sun, the flowers may rise in spring, the trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing. So in western lands, so far to the west of here, beneath the sun, the flowers may rise in spring, the trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches saying, this may be happening right now. In western lands beneath the sun, the flowers may rise in spring. It is, of course, the middle of March, so it is entirely appropriate that spring should be coming to the Shire at this point. The flowers may rise in spring, the trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches saying, or... Or there may be tis there may be tis cloudless night and swaying beeches bare the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. So maybe right now he doesn't know what time of day it is. He knows it's springtime, but maybe instead of of um, instead of the of the, uh, the flowers and the, the trees budding and the waters running and the merry finches singing, maybe it's night there now. And instead of of this this sun dappled idyll, instead maybe it's this this beautiful night scene. Or there may be tis cloudless night and swaying beaches bare, the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. A pair of, of images here, a pair of symbols. What, is, what are the elven stars as jewels white? Well, we may be thinking of, of blossom here in the springtime, right? We may be thinking of, of budding flowers on, on trees back in the Shire. Or because it is a cloudless night, we may be thinking of looking up through the branches and seeing the branches bearing the stars themselves, right? The elven stars as jewels white. So it could be, could be both blossom and the stars, this combination of life and light in the branches. Of, of the beaches and swaying beaches bare. Though here it journeys and I lie in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep. There's an interesting grammatical point of inflection here. To which part of the poem do those two lines belong, right? Though here at journeys and I lie in darkness buried deep, comma, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep. Above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell. So we have the first two lines that are talking about Sam and the last two lines that are talking about the sun and the stars, but the middle two lines potentially belong to both parts. They, they connect both ideas. It is true of Sam that though here at Journey's End I lie in darkness buried deep beyond all towers strong and high beyond all mountains steep, right? That is where I am. If you're looking for me, first you have to go past all towers strong and high. Minas Morgul, Kirith Ungol, right? You have to go past all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, beyond the the uh, the Ethel Duath here too, right? You have to that that is where I am. But also simultaneously, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell, right? 
that's also true of the sun and the stars, that they cannot be bounded by towers or by mountains. So I think that the, the middle two lines there kind of connect. They, they work in both stanzas there. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. Though here at journey's end I lie, in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell, I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. It doesn't matter how dark it is in this in this room here in the Tower of Kirith Ungle. It doesn't matter how hopeless his situation is. The sun still shines. The stars still blaze, either by day or by night, but still the heavens are alight. And we might be reminded of uh, some of the thoughts we had about the dawnless day, right? You'll remember the, these thoughts of, of above the reek, the sun is still there, and then the breaking of, the, of the, the, the miasmic cloud that spread forth from Mordor in the coming of the southern wind that blew the corsairs up the up the Anduin, right? The, the quote-unquote corsairs up the Anduin, and the coming of the light to Theoden's charge across the, the Pelennor. Above all darkness, there is always light. This is by opposition. Oh, I suppose we don't really have time to delve into that. But yes, there is perhaps opposition here with, uh, if you remember the uh, the Riddles in the Dark chapter from The Hobbit, go and look at, at Gollum's conception of the world. Uh, Gollum's kind of... of uh, sense of of cosmology and the darkness that lies beyond all things, that is not Professor Tolkien's view of the world, and it is not Sam's view of the world. Because in Sam's view of the world, behind all things, there is light. Beyond any tower, beyond any range of mountains, no matter how dark your current circumstance, there is light above, either the sun by day or the stars by night. Above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. I will not say the day is done. I will not say that the light has been eclipsed by the coming of night. I will not say that the shadow has overthrown the light. I will not say that hope has been extinguished. Here, spontaneously within him, Sam finds a new kindling of courage and a new kindling of hope. This is one of my favorite poems in the entire book. It's just, just gorgeous. Let me uh, catch up with the chat here. Um, there's a scroll back. <laughs> Angela saying, Alistair is breaking my heart all over again, talking about it. Yeah, no, it's, it's so, so gorgeous. I just love it. Um, Amazing Grace, are we talking about? Uh, Varig of Khan says, Sam's song fits the meter of Amazing Grace or the Gilligan's Isle theme song. It's often used in hymns. I had never made the connection between those two things. Um, I'm going to have to give that some thought. Maybe, maybe, maybe I have, I actually have a guitar just right out of, of arm's reach here. Maybe I'll give that some thought and see if I can't uh, put that together. But it is, it is just so hauntingly beautiful. Absolutely haunting. Yes. Um, oh, and Andrea says, when Tolkien uses singing as a means of rescue, it just breaks my heart. Me too. And it is, yeah, it's absolutely a recurring beat. Um, that, though, is going to do it. It is 3.25 here in Oklahoma City, and I'm afraid that I have a very hard out today, an unusually hard out. But next week, well, next week we have a hell of a reading. Next week we are going to, I guess we didn't even quite finish up chapter one, so chapter two is very short. We'll do our best to cover uh, the rest of chapter one and chapter two and into chapter three next week. I don't think we'll make it all the way to the end of chapter three because uh, that's dense. That's Chapter three is one of those very short chapters that I am pretty much going to pull every word from in order to... Uh, properly discuss the next movement of the story here and then we'll um well we'll transition into what comes thereafter i cannot wait to get to that guys thank you all so much for joining me today this has been an absolute
absolute pleasure. I should say that next week's reading will be back in our usual evening slot next Thursday night. That is June the 7th, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. I hope you will be able to join me for that as we reunite Sam and Frodo. That's the very next slide. That's the next thing that we're going to do is reunite Sam and Frodo and set off on our journey toward Mount Doom. I'm very much looking forward to that, guys. Thank you so much for your company. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, fly, you fools! Fly, you fools!